regulation is in the public interest or is it only in the private interest? Let's talk about regulatory capture today. I'm Chris Joslin, and welcome to Jaws Bites. Welcome as always, everyone. It's always great to have you with us on this edition of Jaws Bites, sponsored you, as always, by iLevelLogistics.com. That's www.iLevelLogistics.com, a place you can go for all your aggregated news concerning transportation, supply chain, world in general. A place you can go to and, and you can have an email sent to you. You can go on any of the social media platforms and see us. Uh, and, of course, we want you to be subscribers. We want you to join the communication, join the community, if you will, and really be part of moving transportation logistics from the sideline to the mainstream where it really belongs. Today, what I really want to do is talk to you just a little bit about some things that have been really bothering me lately. Uh, th there's all kinds of things in the transportation world and the the general political atmosphere, the regulations, the oversight that, that has been coming to mind and it keeps pinging me. It seems like every conversation we have together centers, at least in part, around something in the system that isn't quite right. Not necessarily broken, but certainly more fragile than it should be. And some of that fragility comes straight from the regulatory agencies that supply the parameters that allow us all to do business. I know I've complained about this in the past, and eye level in general is, is good for any size business to take a look at what's going on in the, in the environment out there in terms of what we do for a living. But it also has a direct intent and focus on small and mid-cap businesses. That's something that I really wanted to go after simply because I think they're underserved. I think the voice that we have as an industry tends to deeply embed itself in big data, uh, big companies, big interest groups. And while I understand the importance of that, I certainly worked for a large company before I struck out on my own. I also feel like the entrepreneurialism the, the, that undergirds the small business environment that eventually, like we all do, we want to be bigger companies, at least a lot of us. Some, some people just want to make a living for themselves and their family that's worthwhile, and that's, that's admirable, and it's appreciated, and it's, it's something we need in this world. But more and more, it seems like we're getting pushback from all directions on small business ownership. Certainly this last year, this continuing pandemic season, if you will, has illustrated very vibrantly the effect that can have on businesses of all sizes when they're deemed uh, something that's essential versus not. We've talked about that before in terms of grocery chains compared to the convenience stores, the mom and pop shops compared to the Walmarts, the, the big tech companies that already were situated in a place where they could work from home, so to speak, already. Have everybody has been impacted by this, 
but what but what you see specifically now is a lot of and it's been going on for multiple years but when regulations come down they have kind of a two-prong approach and i think there's the the regulations that are put together specifically with the public interest in mind i think when when regulatory agencies and governments in general are put into place they're they're really put into place for that purpose looking at how the employer actually does or does not take care of the employee properly are there rules and regulations about that is there are there violations that harm our neighborhoods and world in general around us are there things that can we can do to stay more competitive to encourage um, research and development in all kinds of arenas all these things are very important and have the public interest in mind not you know to be combative to large business but to ensure that that there is some way into entry into a field without being barred from it and I, I think that's been going on for a century or more. I'm sure it has throughout the, throughout the civilized world. So these are not new things. But when the public interest is not taken care of, you got to ask yourself whose interest is. And like most things, you simply have to follow the money, right? If you're a large company already, you've, you were first in or second in in a space and you've taken, taken up this big geographic um, area in a business um, industry, then you typically have enough money to overcome a lot of the regulations that come out. Those that are in the public interest, you have the ability to facilitate in a way that, that works to the advantage of your company. But there is a practice called regulatory capture. The definition of that is, is variant but I will give you the one that, that comes to mind the most for me. So regulatory capture, at least the definition that I want to use for our purposes today, is really the economic theory that says regulatory agencies may come to be dominated by the very interests or industries that they are charged with regulating. The result of that, you know, as an agency that's charged with acting in the public interest, instead acts on behalf of, in the benefit for, incumbent firms in an industry that is supposed to be regulated. That, that's totally understandable when you, when you look at the advent of, of lobbyists and you know, our, the, the Congress is a regulatory agency, in effect, by putting laws into place and helping guide regulations, et cetera, um, and, and certainly in transportation in general. This, this can be looked at in a multiple industries, of course, but in transportation in general, the reason this has come to, to kind of the forefront in my mind today to talk about is when you look at things like the PRO Act, which I've had a discussion with you a week or so ago. And the PRO Act, of, of course, has the ABC test from California that was passed about a year and a half ago in there, but expands it nationally in a way that will move 
people that are independent contractors to a point where they either have to change radically how they are defined and utilized by other companies as independent contractors, or they'll have to end up being um, W-2 employees for people. And if you if you look at the statistics, and I'll show you a little statistics come up on your screen here in a little bit, but owner-operators, for the most part, don't want to be W-2 employees. You know, over 50% of them don't want to be W-2 employees. So some will leave the industry. Some will become employees, but some will change and modify what they do. But ultimately, it creates a, a real problem for our industry that is something that the larger companies involved in our industry are looking at and saying, okay, there are pros and cons to this. But ultimately, if if we are on the side of regulatory capture, then these regulations are going to benefit us because we have the pocketbook to control the costs around these things. It's much simpler than a small company. I've said this before in podcasts. Small companies and large companies often are regulated and are in regulated in the same way. They're both they both have to abide by the same set of rules, which is fine. The same set of rules is fine, but how they're implemented is the challenge. And if the rules become punitive, then there are certain entities that can overcome them and certain that can't. And the ones that can't are the ones that either get absorbed by the ones that can or they go away. So ultimately, the penalty that a regulation may apply across the board to all parties involved, all parties in an industry, um, benefit the large company more than the small. It's very easy to see that happening. And so if you look at the lobbying efforts of large companies and what they do in context for agreeing with or fighting against different regulations that come around, they, they probably do both. They probably fight regulations that they see might harm them in some way. But ultimately, they will acquiesce to some of these things if they see in their bigger picture, in their in their analysis of the whole thing, a benefit of more market share. That's what it comes down to. And see, regulatory capture, in my opinion, is really a form of government failure because the government is is put in place and designed for oversight to eliminate the possibility of companies becoming monopolies, companies becoming too big in their space that they crush the competition. And crushing competition only turns into one thing, guys for the consumers out there. And I'm talking the shipping consumers or the public uh, consumers that are buying things from whatever market you're talking about. It results in higher prices. Competition results in lower prices. Regulatory capture results in higher prices, higher costs. Now, it may in effect, two things can be true at the same time. Some of these regulations may adhere to uh, something in our world that needs to happen in terms of improving of neighborhoods, a socioeconomic disposition of, of underserved populations. It could, it could do some things for our air and our water resources, fuel efficiencies. All these things are very important. But again, you have to follow the money to understand where things are going, where they're coming from. So these uh, you know, under-resourced regulatory agencies might be part of the problem. If you have under-resourced regulatory agencies and you have over-resourced lobbying, you can see where this eventually will go and, and how these entities will eventually... It, I mean, it, it's amazing to me that a, a regulator of some kind, the head of a certain regulatory agency, 
will end up being the person in charge of a private company at some point or vice versa. So there's this incestuous thing that goes on. You don't see small business owners like myself becoming regulators in an industry, uh, at least very often. And I, you know, I don't want to sit here and be um, entirely negative. That's not the case. Many of the regulations, especially that are out there today in the transportation world with hours of service and ELDs and things like that, are going to provide a factor of safety that is definitely needed in our industry. And, but ultimately, it's, it's always about where the money goes, right? You know, let me give you one example. It's not a transportation-related example, but of how regulation can really turn things on their ear. Because back in, you know, the, the banking industry is one where if you look at uh, the early 2000s and even late 90s, there, there was certainly regulation, but it was a very soft touch on things. And then when 2008 came around and we had the financial collapse, then the real estate collapse, the Frank Dodd uh, amendments came out and, and really focused in on trying to make that a, a fairer playing field in terms of how loans were handed out, how they were dispersed, how they were bundled, all that kind of thing. And, but in its, its, itera- its initial iteration, you know, it also made the ability for competitive banks to come out there much more difficult at the time. And if if you see some of the statistics on that, you'll note that the charts sh- show that it benefited overall. The, the new additional regulation that Frank Dodd put in place ended up benefiting those that already had all the money, the bigger banks. So now there, today, there are many fewer choices than there used to be as far as the ability to to um, get your finances done through the banking systems out there. And you can argue if that was intentional or not intentional. You can argue if it was in the public interest or in the private interest. But ultimately, as I said a few minutes ago, you end up looking at where the money is going to and from. You know, a lot of big tech companies are great examples as well. I mean, there's a lot of talk right now about the uh, national minimum wage. Some people will call it a living wage, et cetera. But the, the minimum wages are different in almost every state. Some of them have local municipalities that have higher wages. It's, it's very much a bottom-up constraint to the supply of, of workers in any given state, any, any, different, any um, different city, et cetera. And the application of the supposed $15 an hour national minimum wage is, is a very interesting one. And certainly the Walmarts of the world, the Amazons of the world are either already doing this or they certainly can do it already. But what it ends up happening, again, to the smaller entities that are out there is it drives people to either, um, because they have to adhere to these policies. If the $15 minimum wage goes in, then everybody, no matter whether you're in California or Alabama, are going to have to pay that wage. And if they have to pay that wage, they're going to have to eliminate positions or they're going to have to figure out how to automate more, which eliminates positions. So you you just do the simple math. If you had three people um, that you paid $10 an hour for doing X amount of work per day, putting in eight hours a day, now you can only hire two people to do the same amount of work. Is that better for those two people? Well, on the surface, certainly yes. But is it better for society as a whole for uh, how many people are employed versus not? Then no. 
unless those people now decide to go and get a job at, that's right, the larger company that spent all the money on the lobbying, lobbying, spent all the money money, um, helping to agree with whatever regulations and rules and laws and stuff that are put into place come in. (laughs) They're setting up their own circular dynamic to gain more ground on the competition. So now the smaller business has to eliminate jobs and work harder for those that what used to be uh, that that example I gave used to be 16 hours a day for two people at, at, excuse me, it would be 24 hours a day for three people at $10 an hour is now 16 hours a day. So you have to put that much more work in to get the same job done. Now, a Walmart or an Amazon, I use those as examples, can now hire those same people at $15 an hour and take them away from the person down at the other business. So I think you understand the example. And it's a frustrating thing to look at because it affects the bottom line. In large companies can do things for a lesser margin for a longer term specifically to push other competition out of the out of the realm and that's what we're going to be seeing happening the more regulation the more of that certainly there are limits certainly there are things that need to be done for safety and air quality and water quality and all the different things we we need to have structure we need to have people make good livings there's no doubt about that we certainly want don't want to go back to a time when people were were abusing their employees in a way that is you can see over the course of time through historical documentation. What we do need to do is move forward in a conscious effort to, for not only the public good, but the private good. Not one or the other, but both. There's always a way to do that. But what it starts with, it has to start with competent effective regulation. It can't start with people that are uh, hooked at the hip where a regulator who makes up the, 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 whether we're a person or an entity or a house or a Congress or whatever that makes up the rules then gets paid by the people that they're affecting because that is regulatory capture. That is the definition of regulatory capture. And, you know, I wanted just to take a few minutes today to kind of review that and kind of give you my take on it. I think the thing that needs to be the wake-up call for all of us is that there is an innate and serious amount of uh, circular corruption that occurs in our country. We can look at all kinds of other countries and, and we can see and point out human rights violations and, and you know strategies that governments have that, that do a lot of terrible things. But we are not without our own problems or without our own warts, as they say. And what we need to do is recognize them, let the free market start to take care of them in a way, but unburden, keep the shackles off the independent owners, keep the shackles off the small business, business owners, give them, give them a way not to compete with the big guy. They're two different things. The big guy has a structure and a way of doing business, especially in the transportation world, that is like the base. The smaller guys have kind of a different set of rules. Or, or maybe they should. Maybe there should be a 
a tiered way of looking at size and scope of company, the niches involved, the, the industries involved with each of them, and have an, an application of regulation based on you know, some set of four or five factors that can differentiate the types of companies we're talking about. You know, ultimately, I don't have the answer to this, except that my tendency is to think that less regulation is better. Not running roughshod over regulation, not having no oversight. There's necessary oversight that occurs because, as I said a few minutes ago, there's corruption all over, top down. You see it in every industry. You see it specifically in, in the ability of organizations and companies and lobbyists in general or PACs or anything you want to say that peddle specifically. Their, their business is to influence those that create the rules that we all have to live by. And companies spend a great deal of money. These groups spend a great deal of money working on that influence. And us as individuals or as small companies to even play in that same field have to band together to do something about that. And that's what I would suggest. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not anti-big company or only pro-little company or anything like that. I'm, I'm pro-moving business forward. I'm pro-getting things done in a way that becomes more efficient, more effective, but doesn't obstruct what should be a foundational element to the types of business we do today in, in this country. And that is the entrepreneurial American dream, if you will, that anyone, no matter what of our upbringing, can pursue the happiness we're looking through through business elements. So that, that's what I wanted to get out there today and talk about for just a few minutes. Again, like I said, I have no answer to that right now, but I, but I wanted to get this conversation going. It's one of the more important ones that I think we should have, frankly. And I, I, would, I would recommend go to our site, see some, of the, some more of the aggregated articles, some of the specific industry indicators. Go to our YouTube channel to watch this and other videos that we put out there, more content to come. Had an interview last week with a gentleman in Mexico that was talking about their infrastructure, a lot of things going down there. I'll probably have a follow-up uh, conversation with him, him at some point as well. A lot of things, a lot of great things coming down the line. You know, t Listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to the social media platforms and see us there. Comment, be a part of that conversation. Give us likes. You know, subscribe to these things, including our site, and really become more educated. And as I said at the very start of this, at www.ilevellogistics.com, you can be part of something that is growing and taking something that has been sidelined and beginning to mainstream it. So, again, regulatory capture. Don't forget that term. It's very important, and it's, it's something that is pervasive throughout many industries but is becoming a bigger and bigger part of the recognition about some of the things that are going on in, in the transportation logistics industry. Take care, and we've, I'm looking forward to seeing you next time. Bye.